Today, on a special edition of Buffalo What's Next, we continue our Charleston Buffalo, a parallel journey of hope, healing, and reconciliation series. I'm Thomas O'Neill White, and in this episode, I engage in a lively discussion with South Carolina public radio journalist Victoria Hansen, reporter to reporter, about how she covered the Mother Emanuel AME shooting, the vibe in Charleston following the shooting, politics, and the absence of a hate crimes bill in South Carolina, and what we, as journalists in Buffalo, can learn as we continue covering the aftermath of 514. Race is talked about, but the question is, is anything really being done? I mean, I think, you know, how can that shooting not make you take an, another look at race? All of this and more on today's special edition of Buffalo What's Next. WBFO special reports from Charleston, South Carolina for Buffalo What's Next are funded by our members and Health Foundation for Western and Central New York and WNY Medical. WBFO is grateful for their support. We need to get together and let our voices be heard. This is Buffalo What's Next. I'm Jay Moran. I'm Bridget Jaipal Valenza. And I'm Thomas O'Neill White. After May 14th, How can we afford not to talk about race? About education, about segregation, about humanity. Since the dawn of this nation, racial violence has existed. The way we have designed our society has a big hand in what occurred in that Topps market. The suburban area everywhere, we must work and teach our children. We need to make sure that we put more funding in our programs that help prevent gun violence and more money into art. We're going to have some real healing. We've got to have space to tell some uncomfortable truths. Thomas O'Neill White here on the streets of Charleston, South Carolina. Uh, and I'm with South Carolina public radio reporter and producer Victoria Hansen. Victoria, thank you so much for being with us today. Of course. Thanks for dragging me out in the middle of tourism season. <laughs> <laughs> um, so how long have you worked uh, for South Carolina public radio? I've been in public radio for five years now. Five but years. I've been a journalist for about 30. And you are a South Carolina native? No. Uh, no, I'm actually uh, the daughter of a photojournalist who was a combat photographer in Vietnam who grew up in newspaper newsrooms. Oh, um, wow. But I grew up primi- primarily in the South. Charleston's where we used to come on family vacations when I was a kid. It was nothing like this. I grew up in Gainesville, Florida. And um, it was my first broadcasting job in 1991. I moved down here for the first time. Wow. And I worked in TV. And then I keep trying to leave and I just, I can't leave. That's what we say about Buffalo. Yeah. Um, so, what, yeah, you mentioned can't leave. What, what's, what do you love about the Palmetto State and uh, Charleston in particular? You know, Charleston is just, um, somebody once described it to me as a honeypot. So once you come here, you just get stuck. And yes, it's gotten... I actually don't want to leave. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's gotten busy. It's gotten noisy. There are a lot of tourists here, a lot of people moving here. Apparently, people don't know about rising sea levels. So let me just tell you. Um, <laughs> they don't know about all these things. And so they keep coming, and I get it, because I moved here for the first time in 1991. And um, it's just a really special place. And when I think about what makes Charleston special... It's really the African-American history that's here, for me, anyway. What about the African-American history? Is there anything in particular, just everything? 
Well, we still have, and it's not, I think it's being celebrated more now, and hopefully with the museum it will be celebrated, but we still have a lot of Gullah Geechee folks. So these are folks who, um, you know, once freed, they stayed on the plantations, you know, land that was swampy, land that was buggy, there was no air conditioning, you know, and the land that now developers want, like down on St. Helena, um, what was, Hilton Head was once Gullah Geechee lands. And so these are folks who stayed on the land, they prospered, they kept to themselves, they kept a lot of their own traditions, they kept their, their way of life, their basket weaving, their rice growing, um, their storytelling, their, their unique language was basically made so they could talk over the heads of overseers, right? This mm. private language. And when I was a young reporter in the early 90s, I could go out and cover a crime story and hear Gullah. I, I have to go really far to hear it and search it out anymore. But that really, it's the most African people in our nation still live here in small pockets that are getting smaller and smaller. Um, but it is the basket weaving, the rice baskets, the, the, the food. You mm -hmm. know, people call it Southern cooking. It's not Southern cooking. It's, it's African cooking. By that same token, what do you dislike about South Carolina or Charleston? South Carolina as a whole is, you know, unfortunately a, a bit behind. You know, as far as um, education will be ranked last, you know, rights for LGBTQ people were ranked last. We're ranked last in a lot of things that are important. Education, um, high on poverty. The city as a whole has some catching up to do. Mm -hmm. um, as for this area, <laughs> we've just been found out. <laughs> That's what I don't <laughs> like. People have, you know, I have friends that visit and they start looking around and they're looking at houses. And I'm like, no, 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 you can always come back and stay. Yeah. It's gotten crowded. And... Um, we keep building. Mm -hmm. You know, build it, they will come. We just keep building. I mean, I don't know how much of King Street you got up, but especially up East Bay Street, none of that used to exist up there where you see those big hotels. That was, those were black neighborhoods. They flood. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I think, and I think just, like a lot of cities trying to wrestle with climate change, nobody really knows what to do. And I mean, it's, it's right here. Mm -hmm. And so people who move here, and they flatten the old homes and they build these big McMansion farmhouse style homes that look like cookie cutter anywhere kind of places. They go through their first hurricane and they're like, wow, is it always this bad? No, actually, this was a good year. Wow. <laughs> so so I, I, I don't know why people aren't hearing about climate change, but mm -hmm. right here, we live it. it. It floods. You see some remnants of flooding. You know, we've had some rain, but just high tides. Right. Um, we don't have to have a drop of rain and these streets will flood. We have a saying in Buffalo, um, it's pretty recent, but it's called Keep Buffalo a Secret. Yeah. But it seems in Charleston, it's no longer a secret. No, no, it's not only, not only somebody's got a, a bullhorn somewhere <laughs> <laughs> and they're selling tickets. And again, I get it. I moved here 30 years ago for the first time and I, you know, I left for a, for a job for 10 years and I was ready to come back and wait tables just to get back. So I get, I get the lure, I get the love, but um, yeah, I just... Too many people kind of spoils anything, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, I'm in agreement on that. Yeah. So you've covered you've covered the Susan Smith trial. You've covered. Yes, the, I'm old. The, I know. The, the, <laughs> <laughs> yes. I mean, listen. I remember that trial distinctly. I do too. <laughs> I remember. I remember the night scene. Um, I was working TV back then. Don't hold that against me, but I can remember seeing the, the press conference mm -hmm. and getting in a news car and heading straight to Union, South Carolina, and then living there for the next month. So you've co you've covered. 
these big events mm-hmm. in South Carolina, the, the recent Murdoch trial. Um, but the, the Mother Emanuel tragedy has, was it on another level? <laughs> yeah, that one, that one will, that one haunts me. How so? Well, I mean, I was working in television, and I, and I think I told you guys a story, but, um, you know, I worked nights, I was, a, I was a, a news anchor, and so I'd come back to the 11 o'clock news, and it was 9 o'clock, a little bit before 9, probably between 8.30 and 9, and I walked in the newsroom, it was empty, you know? The boss is gone, the kids will play, and the kids were playing. And so I was a little irritated, and then the scanners were on, and as soon as I walked in that newsroom, I heard eight people shot in a church, and screams, and squawks, and then the scanners just went silent. I mean, just dead, no traffic whatsoever. And I went up there to the assignment desk, turning them up, trying to figure out what was going on, what channel did I hear it. I kind of figured out, yeah, it had to be on Calhoun. They'd mentioned Comforted Suites. I think that was the hotel at the time where, where people were, were gathering. Um, but no more traffic. And then I, I've, you know, I've been in this community for a long time. And even when I left to take another job in a bigger city, my, my sources were still my sources. They were mm-hmm. still here. And I was mm-hmm. calling people, nobody, Nobody was calling me back. I got one text that just said, it's bad, Vic, it's really bad. And then as we, you know, I called my news director who was fairly new at the time. She was from Pittsburgh, she was from someplace else. And um, I said, hey, we've had a a shooting. I believe it's Mother Emanuel. She thought I was joking. Like, like, it was that, I would never joke about something like that, but Mm -hmm. it was that off the wall. Um, and so I immediately went to get myself together and getting on the set and making calls from the set and and then we just went wall to wall live on the air and, and me and a really good friend who's been in this community a long time too, we were hearing the names of some of the people that were killed. We hadn't confirmed and we couldn't, couldn't say it yet. Um, and there were people we knew and knew of. And we knew about the church and we knew the caliber of people we were talking about. We're talking about some of the just some of the best people in this city who were spending a Wednesday night at Bible study. Mm-hmm. So I think, um, yeah, it was, uh, had a little bit of a nervous breakdown a couple months after that. I can't even imagine what, what families, did. I mean, it was just, it was, it, it was just horrific to think that people could be shot to death while they prayed all because of the color of their skin. Mm-hmm. It's insane. So it was that, that, that coverage weighed heavy on you. I think anything as a journalist, when you're in it at the time, mm-hmm. and especially when you're just on the air and you are, pro- you're not really processing, right? You're, you're getting information. You're realizing what you can and can't say. During breaks, my co-anchor and I are discussing what we're hearing because it's, it's hitting hard, and you're just in the thick of it. And then you keep going because that's what you do. And then you know, President Obama came, and and then the families forgave. Not all of them. There wasn't a neat little bow. That's not how mm-hmm. this all worked out, mm-hmm. nation. Um, and so you just did all this stuff, and then, yeah, and then we were we were somewhere on summer vacation. I just sort of had a, a meltdown and had my moments with it, um, where you realize where you realize the heaviness of everything you just covered. Mm-hmm. So how did you how did you how did you rally? How did you pick yourself back up? Is this just because it's what we do? It's, it's part of do. the job. It's what we do. It's what we do, and it was um, the way this community dealt with it, the way the families dealt with it. Um, who am I to fall apart? Come on, <laughs> I'm covering it mm-hmm. and covering it the best way I know how. 
And I'm really grateful to be a public radio where now if there is a national story on Mother Emanuel, they're not sending down a national correspondent to do a song and dance. They come to somebody who actually knows. That's what I was going to ask you about yeah. next, actually. What was it like to have national and international media descend upon the city? I mean, I'm a journalist. I get it. I know how sound bites work. I know yep. how we work. But at the same time, you had people coming down that... They're here to tell a story. Stories are, if you can, if you can tie them up, so you can get back home. Mm. And even like with the Murdoch trial, just if you're not there the whole time and you don't have the background, I don't fault the people who came here and did their jobs to the best of their ability and left, but they only had so much knowledge when they came here. Only and had then so they much left. Time and here. only so much time. Exactly. And then they left, right. and a lot of them never looked back. And it hasn't been all roses since then. I mean, families did forgive, yes, but there are families who did not forgive, and that's okay, too. I was actually having this conversation with Chris Singleton, not love Chris. three hours ago. Yeah, he told me to tell you hello. Good God. (laughs) He's just, um, he is somebody who is just taking something absolutely horrible. Horrible, horrible. And I hope you get a chance to listen to him speak, or at least grab some of his, his, his speaking engagements. I just turned it into such a a positive message of love. And even though he said, he said, I'm still angry, mm-hmm. but I need to, you know, focus that anger into something positive. He also, you know, this was this was the, the first time I met him. Okay. He came up to Buffalo yeah. last year um, and, and talked to kids at local schools. Um, he shared his books, and I think it was... It was a very, very positive moment, especially like talking to the kids, because mm-hmm. I think locally in Buffalo is maybe a lot like Charleston in that everybody knows everyone, mm-hmm. so everyone was in some way affected by the shooting, and reaching out to children was something I think was maybe lost uh, in the aftermath of the shooting, so I think a lot of people would are very appreciative of him uh, coming up here. He told me he was going up there, and that's exactly what he said. He said, you know, as um, you know, he was still a kid himself, and he was, he was left to raise his siblings. And so he, he knows what it's like to, I think, to get that information in bits and pieces as he did. He remembers mm-hmm. what it was like to be a young person trying to process information that you're getting. You know, he got the call from his mother's phone. That's how he found out. Jeez. Mm. Mm. Um, so, yeah. And so I, I can only imagine. And he didn't want to push kids. If they wanted to talk, he wanted to be there. Mm-hmm. And I can't imagine a better person. And he didn't want cameras there. He didn't want media there. He really wanted to be organic and, and, and from the heart. So I'm so glad you got yeah. to talk to him. Yeah, it was, it was good. It was good to talk with him again. Um, in, what, in what way did management support you and other reporters or anchors during the time because as you said it was it was heavy on you it was a you know also too i should preface it it was a busy summer mm-hmm. so we had walter scott that's right shot in north charleston that's right um as he fled so that had happened in the spring then we had mother emmanuel and then we had the hundred year floods where we had the worst flooding that this area, the stated scene, I believe, wow. this area for sure, um, has seen in a hundred years. So we had this this torrential flooding event um, where people lost a lot of a lot of 
lot of stuff. It was a, it was just a it was a crazy summer, 2015. Mm-hmm. And then I got out of TV <laughs> about a year later. <laughs> <laughs> um, is 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 race something uh, that you see on the agenda in places like council chambers or other places where uh, decisions are being made about the area? I was pretty stunned to see the city finally apologize for slavery a couple years ago. I don't know that that would have happened before. Mm -hmm. Reparations have been talked about, but nothing never goes anywhere. Race is talked about, but the question is, is anything really being done? I mean, I think, you know, how could that shooting not make you take another look at race? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, and and even the gunman in in your shooting had, if I remember right, had Dylan Roof written on the weapon. I believe so. And he he targeted a black community because he looked up where our city is so segregated that it was easy to him for him to find where all the black people were. Yeah. I mean, Dylan Roof was no dummy. Say what you want about him. He didn't pick that church at random. Right. That is a historic church with a lot, a lot of, of meaning. I mean, this is where, where, where black people saw it. It was a sanctuary for them to, to mm-hmm. be able to worship mm-hmm. freely. Um, so I think it's talked about. I think the shooting had the impact that, you know, the museum got an impetus, a push. I, I, I think it might not be opening as quickly as it is. I mean, it's 20 years of the making if you got a chance to talk to the former mayor. Um, but I don't think anything's going to change until there is education. And, and if you look around the city right now, I was thinking about this walking over. These are all white tourists. Right. Mm-hmm. And you know what is really rich here that you're not going to get in any other city is the African history. Because just a couple blocks away, Gadsden's Wharf, yep. was where nearly half of all enslaved Africans were brought here. And they were quarantined on Sullivan's Island where you may have enjoyed a day at the beach. Um, but that is not the history. That's, that's not the history that people want to come to Charleston and see. And I, I get that, but at the same time, it's the history that we need. And not just the bad that happened, but, but the accomplishments that Africans had on this country. I mean, mm-hmm. you look around the city and everything was built by Africans. Um, and I just, I, I, I look around and it's just a very whitewashed version of a city that, you know, is the cradle of slavery. Buffalo What's Next is coming to you from downtown Charleston, South Carolina. Thomas O'Neill White discussing the parallels between the Mother Emanuel AME shooting in 2015 and last year's Tops shooting in Buffalo with South Carolina Public Radio journalist Victoria Hansen. We're taking a quick break and we'll be right back with more. My name is Damon Fordham and over the last 20 years I've gone through libraries, archives, old museums and interviews with the elderly to get the stories that have been seldom told elsewhere, and I've collected them into four books, a newspaper column, a radio show, a YouTube channel, travels around the country, uh, courses that I teach, and this tour called If These Streets Could Talk, The Lost Stories of Black Charleston. not often discussed with this is the status of free blacks. Now in those days in order to be free you had to have what was called manumission papers and there was nothing stopping anybody in those days from going oh are these your manumission papers? Oops silly me and selling that person back into slavery. Okay. 
Plus, you didn't have vote to the right to vote, nor any real constitutional rights until the 14th Amendment in 1868. And even if you went to the North, it wasn't a haven of freedom because you could easily go have somebody uh, recapture you or accuse you of being a runaway and sell you back into slavery. The most famous case of that is Solomon Northup, who wrote a book about his experiences called uh, 12 Years a Slave that became a popular movie 10 years ago. And there were many states such as Illinois that didn't want free black people at all because the residents were told that the presence of free blacks would make them work, they would work cheap and take their jobs. Sound familiar? Hello. Now, however, you did have cases of free blacks who were educated and were entrepreneurs. One such person was Nat Fuller, who in this building, prior to the Civil War, owned a restaurant called the Bachelor's Retreat. This is where the well-to-do white men of Charleston would come after work and smoke cigars and drink brandy and enjoy his fine cuisine. The Confederacy fell in Charleston on February the 18th, 1865, when a black Union regiment, the Massachusetts 55th, marched through here, and the Confederates surrendered. And they left here for about a year and a half. So during that time, the only white people left here were the Unionists. That is the white people who supported Abraham Lincoln in the Union. So Nat Fuller was so moved by this that in this building in April of 1865, he threw what was called the Dinner of Reconciliation, also known as Nat Fuller's Feast. This is the first known recorded case below the Mason-Dixon line where blacks and whites broke bread at the same tables in a public restaurant. And after the dinner, Nat Fuller was so moved that he raised his glass in a toast to Lincoln and to Liberty. And on the 150th anniversary of this in 2015, 150 or so Charlestonians of both races were invited here for the commemoration of that dinner. And at the end of the dinner, they all raised their glasses in a toast to Lincoln and to Liberty. And among the guests that night was yours truly. <laughs> this is Buffalo What's Next, where we have conversations with the community about moving forward. To have your voice heard, press the Talk to Us button on the WBFO app, and we'll work to get your questions and comments on the air. Join us on Twitter at WBFO or email us at news at WBFO.org. Together, we'll have the conversations that are needed. This is WBFO, your NPR station. Buffalo, what's next? From the streets of Charleston, South Carolina, Thomas O'Neill White sitting here with Victoria Hansen of South Carolina Public Radio. So with that being said, how much is like racial equity gone into reporting since Mother Emanuel? Or how was it like post or prior to Mother Emanuel? How is it mm. now? You know, it's hard for me to say because I was working in TV and um, the family-owned station I came back to work for um, in the early 2000s got bought out by Sinclair Broadcasting. I don't have to say anything more. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> there would be no um, racial equity. There would be no worry about what we cover. So um, I happily landed in public radio where my husband being a history major, that being his primary focus, where stories that I love to tell were suddenly welcomed. You know, it was it was kind of nice. I didn't have to say, hey, can I go cover this? Or can mm -hmm. I can cover that? Like, oh, you know about that? Or you know about that? <laughs> or when NPR called and said, oh, are you writing about this Denmark, D.C., um, you know, anniversary? I'm like, you want something? Because I know this story and I'd love to tell it, but nobody ever wants it, especially not on a national scale. No one and knows it. No one, no one knows, knows it. it. And you, where's the first time we'd ever heard of them was when we got here the first day. Yeah. 
and his ties to Mother Emanuel right. probably surprised you. See, and to me, one of the things about Mother Emanuel that brought some of that to light is so VC was talked about because was it in, was it shooting around this date? Did it have something to do with this, you know? But where's VC's statue? Hampton Park all the way you gotta know and not only once and you, you get to have to park, yeah, you, gotta, walk you gotta go find it you have to know where it is it's not out there like hey you know it's we it's, luckily found like a little denmark vc statue this way yeah and we walked through yes. and it was, there it was but you know you get yeah yes. yeah just like the story of robert smalls i mean come on talk about a man who had the Everything I'm wanting to say is wrong, but <laughs> I mean, I'm seriously, the guy commandeered a ship, you know, I mean, and pretended to be, <laughs> you know, and then turned it over. Um, that's a hero. And those are stories that I'm sure that black kids coming up would have loved to have known mm-hmm. that this is in my history. This, this, this is me. This is in my DNA. This is what I have to be proud of. And I'm really just hoping that that museum when it opens at the end of June, I know that those stories are going to be in there. Um, but are people going to come here for that? And there's been a lot of talk of what businesses are going to profit when people go out for lunch and they go shopping. There are no black businesses left here anymore. King Street used to be all black businesses. Wow. Um, it, this isn't a place for, I told my daughter who's in college here, enjoy living downtown because you'll never be able to afford it. <laughs> the dorm is the best you're going to get. <laughs> because it's expensive. Mm-hmm. It's beautiful. But I just, it's not sexy to talk about race and racism. Especially in this area. Especially but in this, this town. Is, it should be. Yeah. This is, should be the place where it is talked about. This is, this is. This is where the sins were committed. I mean, I, I, we talked about this on the phone. When people get married in a plantation, I just go, are you kidding me? They still do <laughs> yeah, they it. they still do it, I know. And the cloud plantation has started to tell the truth. You know, some of these plantations have started to tell the truth, and mm-hmm. they've taken some heat for it. And again, you know, I, I think it all comes down to education, what you know. My husband being a history major and being interested in African-American history, he's from Philadelphia. I'm from Gainesville, Florida. I was not schooled. I thought the Confederate flag was my heritage. And that, oh my God, are you kidding me? I can't believe that just came out of my mouth that I even admitted I used to think that. But I just didn't know. And it wasn't taught in schools. It wasn't taught in my Southern schools. But once I was schooled, the whole world opened up Mm. in a way that I wish I'd seen it as a kid. Face any ethical challenges in your reporting? Such as? I don't know. I can't really. Uh, ethical challenges. I mean, every day we make ethical ethical decisions as far as our reporting. Um, yeah. I don't know. Maybe reporting on families. Yeah, I mean, I think there's always the. Um, what does? <laughs> what good is a nine one one call? give uh-huh. anybody what what's to be gleaned from sharing that there are certain details to me that was to be gleaned from sharing that this was so horrendous i'm sure you've heard i don't know if you ever got a chance to read jennifer barry hawes's book race will lead us home but there were more than 70 shots fired i know we probably need to stop because that's me having a temper tantrum that's never going to get work um, <laughs> so i'll just give you some background that you don't need bites for but um i mean 
we even went to shoot a TV special there a couple years later. Mm. I'm glad I'm one and done and she's in college. (laughs) 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 Um, And it had been a year or two. And um, we were shooting like the ins and outs, you know, for the pieces. Yes, thank you. Um, I probably said what I said too loud. Um, We're shooting the ins and outs for these pieces. And so I needed to use the bathroom. I needed to put makeup on. It was back in TV days, had my hair in rollers, whatever. And I went, they rode down the basement. And just walking in the side door that he, Dylan Roof, went in was enough. Oh. But going in the basement, you could still see. You could still see things in the walls. Oh, wow, wow. I mean, nothing unless you knew, unless you knew the details. Yeah, Unless yeah. you knew. And if you haven't been there, I mean, the Clement, Reverend Clemente's Pinckney's office was right there. And, the, and there's somebody who's still in that office today. And it's, it's right there. There's paneling. You know, it, it just, yeah, it just, um, so there were a lot of details I didn't think what good does it do mm-hmm. to the general public? How does it further the cause? Co- I mean, you have to, yes, it's, it's salacious. It's like this Murdoch thing. That's yeah. the last thing I ever wanted to cover in my whole life. And you know where I sat? Between Murdoch and the judge, because I couldn't get clean audio in a 200-year-old courthouse. <laughs> I never wanted to cover that trial in a million years. So, you know, I think the ethical decision is how much of this do you disclose? How much, how much of it is important? How much of it is just being... Um, salacious Mm -hmm. to sell a story I mean you don't need to sell that story that story is nine people gunned down as they prayed by a a racist who was welcome to Bible study with open arms that's it Uh you don't need to know every gory detail no no well what can we as reporters in Buffalo learn from the reporting that has been done in Charleston in the wake of the shooting don't stop don't just do a story when there's an anniversary. Oh, it's the one-year anniversary. Oh, it's the two-year anniversary. Oh, it's the 10-year anniversary. Oh, let's do it at five. Let's do it at 10. Let's do it at 15. Don't just call those families at anniversary time. Mm-hmm. Make those families part of your life. Their lives are part of yours. Don't stop. Don't stop sharing their stories. Don't stop checking on them. Don't stop seeing what has changed or not changed in your city. Don't stop checking and asking questions. We still don't have a hate crime law in this state. Eight years after one of the most horrendous hate crimes. I mean, that doesn't make any sense. And we keep asking, and we keep asking, and we keep pointing out there isn't one. So I would say as reporters, don't, just don't, don't forget about the story. And there'll, there'll be another shooting, sadly. There'll be something else that happens. Unfortunately. Yeah, and so don't, don't forget this one. Don't forget the next one, and and don't just call just don't just call families and victims family. Don't just call when it's an anniversary when you're looking for that soundbite for the anniversary. Keep in touch with them all year long and see see what they're up to, and you will get more stories and you'll know what to do with. Speaking of the hate crime bill, yeah, how close is the state to adopting a hate crimes bill? Um, it gets just, it, what's it the gets rationale to, for not adopting it? I've been asking that forever. <laughs> It gets to this point quite frequently, and then it just never gets brought up again. So, 
Um, I don't know if you heard some of the testimony from Polly Shepard and folks who showed up to testify. I think I, I sent you guys a link, but um, it's gotten to this point before. I mean, I don't, I've never he heard a reason why. Honestly, I think, I think lawmakers just don't, being told, don't like being told what to do. I, I don't know what passing, I mean, people, they'll, they'll say that it, it won't make that big a difference. We have a federal hate crime law. It's, you know, it's not gonna, it's not any different than what's already out there. I've just never heard a good reason for it. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, even if it was just these, these people who suffered say, it's almost like this never even happened to us because you're not even acknowledging it by having a hate crime spill. I mean, the one thing the city did, I thought that was, that was really important in the very beginning from the mayor to the police chief at the time is say, right up, right up, this was a hate crime. Before even releasing, this was a hate crime. And, and didn't circumvent that. But our state's been, you know, it's been slow to follow, and it's it's a it's a long road between Columbia and Charleston. I'll just say that. Mm. I spoke with a local pastor <clears throat> who had dipped his toe in politics previously. Um, he said the state is slowly turning purple. A little behind North Carolina, which I guess some would say is fairly purple. But um, what are you seeing? Are you seeing uh, are you seeing a shift? It depends. I mean, post-COVID um, or during COVID, you had a lot of people who were moving here because they liked the um, the state of politics down here. They didn't want to be told to wear masks. They didn't want to be told to shut their doors. So you had an influx of people who sought this culture and this climate, this political climate for that reason. So I used to think as more people move here, you know, maybe it'll, it'll change the color, that we will be purple. But it depends upon who's moving here and why they're moving here. Mm. So I, I, I've seen pockets of it. Again, um, this area is not does not speak to the rest of the state. You really have to go several hours inland to get the real pulse of what South Carolina is, because this isn't it. This is tourists, mm -hmm. and this is people who have chosen to live here, and and the politics are, are a little bit different. They're you know. Um, the first congressional districts, for example, we hadn't had a, a Democrat uh, represent Congress in 40 years. And we had Joe Cunningham. Big surprise. He ran on climate change and offshore drilling. Nobody wanted that. Um, and that seat quickly flipped back to uh, Republican. It's now Nancy Mace, Congresswoman Nancy Mace. And they, they redrew the lines in such a way. Um, I don't see another Democrat winning that seat. <laughs> um, People of color have been put in Jim Clyburn's seat in Clyburn's district. So, yeah. What about the removal of Confederate monuments? Um, they took down the Confederate flag from the state capitol. And I have to remind myself that actually happened. Yeah, why is that? Because I still, in my head, it's still there. Mm. Because I just never saw that happening. I mean, I have to remind myself, oh yeah, it's not there anymore. And maybe it's because I'm here in Charleston, so I'm not faced with it too, but you know, there were marches, there were protests, kicking and screaming. It, it, it took what happened to Mother Emanuel for that to happen. Do you see that as more as a symbolic gesture? Or is it, <clears throat> we're taking the Confederate flag down, we're removing some monuments, and we're going to put actions behind these? John C. Calhoun was kicking and screaming. I think I heard him scream as they took him down. <laughs> I mean, seriously, it took 17, 17 hours to get that down. They wanted him up there. Mm -hmm. 
and the time that they put him up there at that period of time was it was for a reason and the way he faced part of the city and not the other part of the city was for a reason and if you talk to people who um, black people who grew up as kids you know who worship at Mother Emanuel their families they talked about walking past that statue and how intimidating it was and you know their parents explained to them what that meant as he peered down on them I mean it was an when they brought that thing down, because I was, I was going to be there. I was going to see that face-to-face, right? I yeah. wanted to see. Uh-huh. And he was, whew, up close. Now, I don't have to remind myself that's down, because that was an integral part of my day going through the city. You know, for a while, I was like, wow, there's nothing there. <laughs> <laughs> why isn't Denmark VC there? That's what I'd like to know. Seems yeah, to me a great place. in Hampton Park? Well, I mean, the old citadel, you know, the citadel was built as a fortress to keep another up, keep another slave revolt. They so feared Denmark Vesey and what he might have done that they built the citadel, the original one. And that's now the embassy suites, which is right up the road. I mean, to me, Vesey would be perfect right there. But they've built nothing there. It's just come down. Mm. And that one was, you know, this, this city found, I think, a loophole, a way to bring it down without violating the Heritage Act. But the state will still tell you they violated the Heritage Act, and they're still kicking and screaming. And, you know, uh, Mr. Calhoun is kept in storage somewhere secret <laughs> because everybody's afraid something's going to happen to him. What is the Heritage Act? Is that, is that just in South Carolina, or is it other places in the South? In South Carolina, we have a Heritage Act, which protects certain, and I wouldn't have to get the language out for you to look at, but if you look yeah. it up, it just protects certain monuments um, and statues based on heritage okay uh and it it fell under the heritage act but because it was and again i'd have to get out the logistics of it but the the brief of it is it was given to the city is what the city is claiming they found a loophole ah took it down what really happened is we had protests on king street that turned quite violent following uh george floyd so a city that kept relatively calm or did keep calm not relatively was calm during mother emmanuel which was so ugly and so awful uh george floyd People took to the streets, and younger kids. I don't know if you talked to Pastor Thomas Dixon, but younger kids are really getting involved in this movement here. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so there, there was violence. And people were like, oh my God, there was violence on King Street. Can you believe it? And I was like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, it was, Pastor it was, Dixon was the guy. Yeah, quoted, yeah, yeah. Thomas, yeah. he's he's a, and he's another just a, a. So he works with a lot of youth. Yep. To continue his his message, and um, and I think that's important. He, and he's got youth that. You know, don't just march and protest, but they do stuff within the city, as I'm sure you found out, to try to try to help and make a difference. So. Any other words of wisdom for us reporters coming into the first anniversary of this our our local tragedy? What else? What else? What else should we we be doing? keep asking questions about what has changed and what hasn't changed what we know and what we don't know because what we don't know like what hasn't changed the what we don't know is just as important what we do know what hasn't changed is as important as what has changed Um, change is slow typically and I just think you just have to keep asking the questions and you have to just keep pushing and just not forget not forget the story you know, the next thing happens. I mean, how many mass shootings have we had? I can't even keep them straight anymore. It's, it seems like over the last two weeks, one every day. 
Well, I think like. the number of, yeah, the number <clears> that they said from <throat> the beginning of the year was at least one every day. I mean, my friends in Nashville just went through, a, I worked there for 10 years. You, you can't keep up with them. And I think about somebody like Chris. Every single one of those is like his mom getting killed again. Yet they've just, they blur together anymore. I mm -hmm. mean, they're the, the Alabama birthday <clears throat> part. I mean, it's just, yeah, you can't, you can't keep track of them. It's, it's mind, it's mind blowing. Two, two shootings in my hometown of Louisville. Yes. It's just like, when, was it, when will it ever end? Well, and we had the shooting, I don't think y'all were down here yet, but we had the shooting on the Isle of Palms. That was right before we came down here. On the beach. Yeah. You know what all the talk was about that? So it was spring, it was on the eve of spring break, and a bunch of the seniors were doing like senior skip day. Yep. Well, the video, there were a bunch of fights. There were hundreds of kids on the beach, and it was most, it was black kids fighting. And all the comments were, oh, well, it's black people. Let's not talk about weapons. It's, it's, a skin, it's, it's the skin color, not the guns. Mm. That's what it turned into. Just like the Nashville. Oh, it turned into a gender issue, not yeah. about the weapons. And we're going to spend more time talking about a girl or a guy. Does it really matter? If that person had a knife, could they have killed that many people? Is it our job as journalists to counter that, counter that type, or, or are we just focused on facts? Oh, I, I like to, I take every argument if I know, if I'm talking to two sides, right? Mm -hmm. um, for instance, I'm doing an LGBTQ story and um, it's two gay men. Uh, one's a prominent rabbi in town and they adopted two girls from Vietnam and one is transgender. We want to talk about the trifecta of, of discrimination right there. Mm -hmm. And so I've got to ask the question that people who are going to hear the voices are going to go, oh, well, it's, I have to ask. So there are going to people say, there are going to people say, because you're gay, it's your fault that she's transgender. I have to always think, what is the other side going to be thinking and screaming at the radio or the TV when I was in TV or when I was in print writing? What are they going to be screaming? And it's not me to push that agenda. It's me to pose that question. Right. Because that's like anything. When you see a story and you're like, well, what about that? And then you hear the reporter ask, oh, thank God. <laughs> <laughs> so whether, whatever side it is, and I had to say, hey, this, this is what's going to be thought. Not my words, but mm -hmm. I can hear the social media comments coming. What would you say? You know, and same thing with, you know, um, when, I, when I talk to people, I mean, unfortunately, most of this legislation is all written by the same groups that are going through all of our state legislatures. But when I ask about it, you know, the, these people discriminate against because uh, they're Jewish and they're, they're gay and had to come out in the 80s. They faced AIDS. They faced all this. And mm -hmm. they say we're still at war. And now they have a transgender kid. How much discrimination do people really need to face right. before we say people just let people live and let live? That's what I ask the lawmaker. You know, I try to think of what... What are the two sides? What would they want to ask each other if they actually sat down and had a conversation? And I'm the, I'm the intermediate person. It's not my job to push an agenda. It's not my, but it is my job to say, this is what so-and-so is going to say about that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, yeah, and just good luck. I mean, it takes a toll on the community. This, um, yeah. this community still isn't, isn't right. I don't know that you will Eight ever be right later. after something. Yeah. I don't want you to be right after something. Come on, how, how can you be right with something like that? People are going to Bible study. Yeah. They're praying. They welcomed a stranger in. They were they closed their eyes when he opened fire. Their eyes were closed and he shot them point blank blank range. It's just like people shopping in a grocery store. Yeah. Minding minding their own business. Doing their own thing. Doing their own thing. Not hurting anyone. 
all just trying to get through our own lives and what we're dealing with. That's it. And one person is, and if Chris, God bless him, can change one racist heart. I mean, he told me that he had a trip to Buffalo planned that he didn't get to make. And he was beating himself up thinking, maybe I missed him. Maybe if I, th th your shooter had been in, I think, in high school. And said, if I had, if I had, if I had gotten to him. I'm like, Chris, really? You're going to take the blame for that? But if I had, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, if, if I had changed that. Um, yeah, I, I, I wish I had the answers. I'm just a reporter like you, man. Yeah. <laughs> I'm yeah. just asking questions. <laughs> I'm just asking the questions. Uh -huh. And now I've been doing it for 30 years and um, try like hell to get a PR job and figure that's just not what I'm meant to do. So. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Public radio allows me to stay in this wonderful city that I love yeah. and um, get this dressed up all day long. Yeah. Buffalo What's Next is coming to you from downtown Charleston, South Carolina. Thomas O'Neill White discussing the parallels between the Mother Emanuel AME shooting in 2015 and last year's Tops shooting in Buffalo with South Carolina Public Radio journalist Victoria Hansen. We're taking a quick break and we'll be right back with more. One of the tragic byproducts of that was that during those days, during the, the segregation era, if a black student was unusually gifted and wanted more than what the black colleges like South Carolina State had to offer, the states would pay their way to go to a northern university with, with no strings attached. The idea was that if a black, they figured that if a black person with intelligence would go to the north and make more money, they wouldn't want to come back down here and incite the locals toward revolution, you see. That was the case here until 1963 when Harvey Gantt, who graduated from Burke High locally and who participated in the sit-ins in 1960, they wanted to send him to Iowa State to study architecture, but he said, no, I don't like Iowa, it's too cold, my parents pay tax money to Clemson University, I want to go to Clemson, and he sued and that allowed him to go to Clemson University, and that's what desegregated the South Carolina colleges and ended that system of paying these people way out of here to perpetuate a system of brain drain. This is Buffalo What's Next, where we have conversations with the community about moving forward. To have your voice heard, press the Talk to Us button on the WBFO app, and we'll work to get your questions and comments on the air. Join us on Twitter at WBFO or email us at news at WBFO.org. Together, we'll have the conversations that are needed. This is WBFO, your NPR station. Buffalo, what's next? From the streets of Charleston, South Carolina, Thomas O'Neill White sitting here with Victoria Hansen of South Carolina Public Radio. Hey there, Victoria. A quick question for you, and maybe you could clarify, especially since we got the perspective of the reporters, but coming up on the one-year anniversary of the Buffalo tragedy, and with hindsight of eight years behind your tragedy, 
We still have citizens in Buffalo that are frustrated, hurt, uh, scared, and not knowing where to go or what to do next. And with this hindsight of eight years, do you have any ideas, thoughts, or suggestions for the listening audience, basically for the people who are still struggling? I would say you still have those feelings that are still fresh for a reason and you need to do something with them. And sitting home and sitting in your head is not the solution. Organize, do what Chris is doing, do something. Find your calling, find your impetus, but do something you think will make a difference. Don't just sit with the feelings. Take those feelings and let them catapult you somewhere else. Um, you have them for a reason. And you know, and there, those feelings eight years later here in Charleston are still raw for some people. And, oh, well, it was eight years ago. Well, yeah, tell that to the person. I mean, everybody processes things differently. And so I can't say it gets better. I don't know. Fortunately, I haven't been in that position. Um, but you have those feelings for a reason and, and acknowledge them. And if you can do something, if you're not satisfied with the status quo or the answers that you're getting following your loss, keep fighting. There's, there's a reason. There's a reason. I like to think. It makes me think the world's an easier, better place if there's yeah. a reason. Right, right, um, right. I, I don't know. I mean, I know people here that still, Pastor Thomas Dixon's a great example. I mean, he still fights a good fight every day because. Every day. Every single day that man is. And, and he's not one doing it when the cameras are here. He's not one who's doing it for the glory. Um, he doesn't have a ton of Facebook followers or Twitter followers. It's not about the likes and stuff. He does it because that's where his heart is. And there is a difference between those people. The people who show up, that's the other thing to look for as a report. The people who showed up after your shooting right away, and they'll come back for the anniversaries. Yep. And then there'll be the people that are there every single step of the way, and they don't leave. Those are the people. We were, I, I heard three different people say the exact same thing. Beware of false prophets. Yep. Yes. Beware of people that are just coming there for glory. Mm -hmm. I heard that from multiple people. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think, you know, people are like, well, how did it stay so calm there, blah, blah, blah. I really think that the elder, the, the elder community here really did a good job of keeping those people out. The people who were going to use what happened in Charleston to make a name for themselves, to make a point, to cause a disturbance, to distract. And this community is pretty tight-knit, and they, they put their arms around each other and said, no, you're not getting in here. Mm -hmm. And we also had a mayor who'd been here for 40 years. Um, a police chief had been around here for quite a while. Um, and a lot, of, um, a lot of religious leaders, not just Thomas Dixon, but a lot of religious leaders who stood up and said, mm-mm, this is not the time. This is not the time or the place. Um, now, when the funeral, you know, when, when President Obama came, and then everybody starts showing up. Yeah. And, and uh -huh. with the church, you don't have to read between the lines to see some of the stuff that happened there. People showed up and, you know, try to make a name for themselves off that church. Um, which, you know, when you know about Reverend Clemente Pinckney, it's, mm -hmm. <laughs> it's, yeah, so. And he was a lawmaker, too. That's the other yeah, thing that right. people forget. You know, that's he right. Was, he, was, he was a lawmaker, he, too. He, the, <gasps> Thomas, he not have a hate crimes bill, and there's his picture, you know? Thomas Dixon said, you know, the people that sat with Pinckney mm -hmm. every every day mm -hmm. couldn't then turn around and make a law, like, maybe not in his honor, but, you know, it's it's like, why not just do this? Like, this is your colleague who died. 
and you're just gonna you're gonna you're gonna go to the funeral but when it's time to make change effective change you're gonna turn your back even if you believe that hate crime law didn't add any more teeth than what we already have this is my personal belief even if that's your thought or your argument what's the diff then mm-hmm just do it what's it gonna hurt unless you just don't like being told what to do <laughs> ding, 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 yeah. ding, ding, ding. <laughs> that's what I'm told more often than not is the deal uh-huh. um, we still I mean the only interest I had in Murdoch is the good old boy system that crumbled you know you still have the good old boy system in place in this state I mean I left here in 90 here in 91, left in 98. I didn't come back in 2006. We still had the same police chief, the same mayor, North Charleston, same police chief, wow. same mayor. I mean, they've switched since I've been oh, back. Oh, yeah, but that's but a But it's long like I had never time. left. Yeah. I could come back and have the same sources I had 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. How often does that happen? <laughs> you know? Um, and to me, that's where Murdoch, if there was fascination, to me, that was the fascination. It was sitting in that courtroom and listening to it, the only judge who could handle that case because his hands weren't dirty and he grew up with segregation and grew up with struggles mm-hmm. and here he dressed down a once prominent white man in a courthouse that once prominent white man used to run like his own and tried to even during the trial at times Yep. and did so poetically <laughs> and with grace so you know that part is fascinating to me that part's really fascinating, but you know, I got to be helpful. I, I'm hoping this museum. I hope that people will come and educate. But again, I'm looking around and going, "Well, the guy from New Jersey just offered me a carriage tour." <laughs> 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 um, so, but yeah, uh, it's, it's a great city if you're interested in that history. You know, it, it, it's a great city, period. But yeah, that kind of history you're not going to find other places, especially if you go down to the Sea Islands. And I'm working on a story right now. This developer just bought. This land and the Gullah people have the uh, cultural overlay protection where you're not allowed to build golf courses. They don't want to become Hilton Head. Mm-hmm. Um, this guy's bought three parcels of land. So you can only have nine. You can't have more than nine holes of golf, but he has three next to each other. Oh. Gee, I wonder what he's going to do. <sighs> and if he doesn't develop well, the sea levels are going to get in anyway. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Eventually, yeah. <laughs> well, actually, probably sooner than later, <laughs> the way we're headed. Yeah. Well, Victoria... It's so nice to have you with us today. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for thanks for just opening up about sure. Charleston. It's sure. very much appreciated. It's a great city. I'm I'm blessed to be able to live here. And reporting from the streets of Charleston, South Carolina. Yeah. Thomas O'Neill White, WBFO News. courthouse that was built in 1896 and prior to that it was our city armor. The best known judge that ever practiced here was Judge Julius Waitees Waring who was born here in 18, 
1880, and his father was a Confederate general. Now, in 1946, he tried a case called Isaac Woodard versus Linwood Shelf. Isaac Woodard was a black man from Winsboro, South Carolina, who had just gotten discharged from the Second World War and was at the bus station in Augusta to, drop, to go back to Winsboro to see his wife. So on the way back to Winsboro, he's in the back of the bus, and he asked the bus driver if he could pull over to use the bathroom. Well, the bus driver called him the N-word and told him, you get off of this blankety-blank bus when I stop the so-and-so bus. So Isaac Woodard just got back to fight the Japanese, so he's feeling no fear. So he cursed the bus driver back in 1946 from the back of the bus in rural South Carolina. This didn't end well. The bus then went into the country town of Batesburg, South Carolina, 40 miles to the west of our capital in Columbia. And the bus driver went into jail and got Sheriff Linwood Shove, who proceeded to drag Isaac Woodard off the bus and beat him in the face with a billy club until he lost his sight. Judge Waring tried the case. And at the end of the trial, he told the all-white jury to deliberate. The jury came back in five minutes and ruled in favor of Sheriff Shell, not guilty, Your Honor, and the courthouse applauded. And Judge Waring's wife, Elizabeth, burst into tears and ran out of the courthouse. And Judge Waring stripped off his robe, stormed in the street and vowed, I will never try another case like this again as long as I live. So one year later, July 12, 1947, inside this courthouse, Judge Julius Waitees Waring ruled that the laws preventing black people from voting in South Carolina since Reconstruction violated the 15th Amendment to the Constitution of the United States. So that allowed my parents and their generation of black people to vote in South Carolina. But that was not universally appreciated because rocks went through his window and crosses were burned on his lawn. So the next year, he visited President Harry S. Truman, and he told President Truman the story that I just told you. And President Truman said, my God, I had no idea it was that bad down there. And that is what led President Harry S. Truman to sign the executive order banning segregation in the armed forces of the United States of America. So three years later, 1951, Judge Waring tried the case called Briggs versus Elliott, where Harry Briggs and his wife Eliza, a black couple up in Winsboro, excuse me, Somerton, South Carolina, sued because the white school was palatial and the black school was a tar paper shack. It is important that I explain that part of the reason for that was that the wealthy whites of the South wanted the blacks to serve as a permanent class of cheap labor. So therefore, that what better way to ensure that than to separate, ostracize, and undereducate people for that purpose? So they sued, and their lawyer was the great Thurgood Marshall, who in 1967 would become the first black Supreme Court Justice of the United States. So Judge Waring ruled in favor of the Briggs family that segregation violated the 14th Amendment to the Constitution of the United States. But that was a federal case with two other federal judges, John J. Parker and, and George Bell Timmerman, who would later become governor. They ruled against Judge Waring to prevent the segregation from happening in South Carolina. So Judge Waring faced another round of harassment with his wife, and at 72 he was too old for that, so, he moved, so they moved to New York for the rest of his life. The case made its way to Washington, D.C. as Brown versus Board of Education, which ruled on paper that the school should be desegregated. WBFO special reports from Charleston, South Carolina for Buffalo What's Next are funded by our members and Health Foundation for Western and Central New York and WNY Medical. 
WBFO is grateful for their support.